Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted 2015, a Christ Central festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends, enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom, transforming the world, and reaching nations, making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next year. so much. Well, welcome to Devoted. It's great to finally be here to be enjoying, actually at the moment, what's been pretty good weather so far on this fantastic campsite. It's been wonderful just to experience what God's doing around the site. Uh, Just hearing wonderful news from our teens and children's work of already children and young people giving their lives to Jesus, which is uh, just so wonderful. Believing God for many people to be touched, even tonight. Uh, believing God that he's going to pour out his presence upon us. That he is going to be real to us tonight. His presence to bless, his presence to touch is going to be very real, very tangible tonight. I'm believing for that. And if God touches you, if God stirs your heart, if there's something new that's been happening in your heart, we'd love to hear about it. You might want to tweet to us. You might want to let the office know. You might want to come to us because we'd love to hear your stories. This is not just about a big event. This is about individuals being touched by God in the community of God. Now, God's been really speaking to me this year about his presence, about us as a people of God, as Christ Central Churches, part of the wider family of New Frontiers, having a hunger, having a passion for the presence of God, that that's the thing that distinguishes us. It's the thing that marks us out out of all peoples on planet Earth, and that is when we turn up, whether it's two or three, gathering his, in his name, he is there with us. He shows up. We're a people of the presence of God. And uh, I felt drawn to a passage earlier this year that I've never preached on before until uh, these last few days, really. And God's been speaking to me out of Exodus chapter 33. So if you've got a Bible, uh, why don't you turn to that? I'm going to read Exodus 33, verses 1 to 3, and then Exodus 33, verse 12 to 23. Let me just set the context of this. Let me just give you the background for where we've got to in this. This is God's dealing with a family. It's God's dealing with some individuals. That's what God does. He loves to do that. God thinks big but starts small. He starts in a life and in a family's life. And God has got hold of a man called Abraham. In fact, first of all, he was called Abraham, father exalted father. But it was a bit of a joke because he didn't have children. And God said he's going to get hold of this man and change his name from exalted father to Abraham, father of a multitude, father of many nations. And actually through him and through his offspring, God was going to bless every family on planet earth. 
That's God's way. He starts small, and he's done that with Abraham. We've had the story of how he's done that through Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, his son Joseph. God loves to work through these generations, and God has got hold of Israel, the family of Abraham. He's taken them into Egypt. And we know the story of Joseph, of how they go into Egypt and become a mighty nation within a nation. They become a nation within Egypt. And God blesses them and God prospers them. And that's what God does to the people of God. He always blesses us. He always causes us to prosper. He always gives us his grace and things happen and there's multiplication and blessing. But unfortunately, there's some enemies in this story as well. There's some bad guys in this story. And unfortunately, the Egyptians aren't too pleased that God's people are prospering, that God's people are growing, that God's people are blessing. And a Pharaoh arose who didn't know the way of Joseph, didn't know the way of God, and actually started to oppress the people of God, started to push them down, started over decades and actually hundreds of years started to persecute the people of God. But God hears, and God knows, and God had a plan to redeem Israel, to save Israel, to get them out of captivity, and to give them a land, which was not just about a piece of land in the Middle East. It was about a footprint of land that one day would fill all of planet Earth. And so God takes them through Moses, raises up a man again, loves to start small, raises up this man, and he delivers them miraculously out of Egypt. What an incredible story it is. We know that from our Bible reading, from our Sunday school, from films that we might have seen, how God delivered them out of Egypt with these incredible signs and wonders out through the Red Sea, how the Red Sea parted, how they went out and into the wilderness. They were supposed to only spend a few days, perhaps six weeks in the wilderness before they were to enter the promised land. But as we know, there are difficulties on the way and we're just about to encounter one of those difficulties because the people of God should have been very jubilant. If you'd just been released from 400 years, or perhaps not you personally of 400 years, but your family of 400 years of slavery, you'd be very happy about it. But unfortunately, as sometimes happens with the people of God, not mentioning any names, any individuals, but sometimes we can start to moan and start to grumble and start to complain. And they started to compare the life they had in Egypt with the life they now have in the desert. They were saying things like, hang on. We had garlic and cucumbers in Egypt. I mean, you know, let's compare it. Garlic, cucumbers, slavery. I mean, you know, I'd much rather be a slave and have a cucumber, wouldn't you? Much rather have be a snow. But they start to complain, they start to mumble, and God starts to share his heart with Moses in an incredible way. He calls Moses up a mountain for 40 days and God downloads to Moses, we, I guess we call it the Ten Commandments or the law, but it was not really 
God's way for living. It was God's way for life. It was God's way of community. It was God's way for the people of God to express the heart and love of God in the community and in the world and ultimately to be a shining light for the nations. That was the point of the whole thing. And Moses is up the mountain with his faithful servant, Joshua. He's encountering the glory of God. He's encountering God and the people start to moan. The people start to mumble. And they come down from the mountain. And Joshua says, I can hear the sound of war. It sounds like there's some warfare going on. And Moses says, this isn't good. This is not the sound of victory. It's the sound of defeat. And what's happened in the camp is while Moses has been up the mountain, the people have said, who knows where this guy is gone? He's been gone a long time. Who knows? Perhaps he's in some trouble. Perhaps he's in some difficulty. I'll tell you what, Aaron, here's the new deal. Why don't you make for us a golden god? You know, like the ones we used to have in Egypt when we had the good time, the cucumbers and the garlic and the gods. You know, if you could make for... Here's a load of gold that we collected. If you could make a god for us, then we'd be happy. We could bow down to that, worship. Everything would be fine. And Moses is coming down at this time. There's debauchery at the camp. There's drunkenness. There's revelry. There's a, a, a sense of giving themselves over to lust and licentiousness as they worship this golden calf. Later on, Moses is very angry. God's very angry, but Moses is very angry with Aaron. He said, what have you done? Aaron says, well, I, I put the gold into the fire and look what came out. <laughs> you liar. You, you, you've not read the text. Aaron. It says he fashioned it. He crafted it. And they worshipped it. And God is very angry with this people. He's very angry with their disobedience. And a plague starts to break out in the camp. And 3,000 people died. And I'm just so impressed as I've been reading this with Moses, actually. I'm so impressed with his heart. I'm so impressed with his attitude. I'm so impressed with the man, Moses. Because, you know, I would have said, God, just get, yeah, get, they're a pain. Get rid of this lot. Get rid of them. Start again with me. I'm a pretty good guy. You know, we've had some good times up the mountain. Joshua can come along for, you know, let's get rid of this lot. That's okay. No, he doesn't. He starts to intercede. He starts to pray to God. He says, oh God, save your people. Oh God, come on your people. Oh God. In fact, God, here's the deal. If you won't bless this people, blot me out. In fact, I'll take all the sin on myself. He becomes almost Christ-like. He becomes uh, like a substitute for them, like a, a, a prophetic type, a prophetic foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus who did take all the sin that should have been on us and took to himself. And Moses says, well, I'll take it. And God says, okay, I'll forgive their sin. This is the grace of God. This is the gracious God that we serve. That actually, if we turn to him in repentance, because the people turned in the end in repentance, God will forgive sin. He will. And he does. But he says, now there's going to be a new deal, Moses. And there's kind of an interplay happening now between Moses and God. And I think there's some testing of the character of Moses. There's some finding out where Moses is really at. And God says to Moses, okay, Moses, this is the new deal. I, did, I know I said I'd go with you, but actually, here's the new deal. You get an angel. An angel could go with you. An angel will go with you into the promised land, but I won't go. Let's just see how Moses responds to this. Exodus 33, 
1 to 3. This is what the Lord says. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt. It's quite funny, isn't it? As if Moses had brought them out. You and the people you brought out of Egypt. And go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham. Here's the family promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. And I'll send an angel before you. And drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the otherites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'll not go with you. Because you're a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) It's kind of graceful. Let's pick it up from verse 12. This is Moses' response. I love this response from Moses. Then Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me to lead this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. In brackets, apart from the angel. You've said, I know you by name, and have you found favour with me? Now, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways. I want to know your ways, so that I might know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this is your people. The Lord replied, there's a a wonderful turning of God. God turns when he wants to. The Lord replied, okay. doesn't say okay, but that's my translation. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And it's almost like Moses just wants to press it and make sure that God is going to go with them. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and that you're, uh, uh, and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses is cheeky. He presses it again, and he's almost asking, I think, for a kind of down payment on this. Because he says, now, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord says, okay, it's my translation. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he says, you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. And then the Lord says, and this is weird, unless you understand the context and the prophetic fulfillment, there is a place where you may stand in a rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. You're the living God, the same God that spoke to Moses face to face. The same God that showed his glory to Moses is the same God who manifests his presence here tonight. Come on us tonight, we pray. We position ourselves tonight to be hearers and receivers of the word of God. We ask you, Lord, come on us. Let this word be living. Let it be real. Let it change lives. Let it change our communities. Be on us in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, it's not a bad deal. 
I'd have taken the deal. You know, I'd have, I'd have gone for it. An angel. I mean, that's impressive, isn't it? And isn't it very contemporary? Isn't it very, you know, what happens? You know, I'd, be, I would, I'd have the book, The Day the Angel Came. I'd have the God TV slot, The Day the Angel is with me. Tales of Angelic Presence with me. I'd be pretty pleased with that, if I'm honest with you, if I knew God was sending an angel to do this. Now, I'm not despising angelic manifestations. We actually are so grateful for all God's ministers, all that he sends to do his bidding. I believe there are angelic presences even on this camp, even amongst us and amongst our children's work. But actually, it's not angels we worship or angels particularly that we welcome. It's actually his presence we want. And Moses has got that. He's got it deep in his spirit. He's got it deep in his heart. He says, that's great. Thank you for the angel, but it's not an angel I want, Lord. I want you. I want your presence. Now that, I believe, is the cry of the true people of God. It's the cry, I believe, God is birthing in our hearts as Christ's central churches. It's the cry that God, it's okay to do all the stuff, but unless you go with us, unless your presence is with us, actually we don't want to go, we don't even want to do the stuff, we don't want to put the show on unless your presence goes with us. God, we need your presence. Now, you might be a bit confused by this. You might think, well, surely God is omnipresent. You might have heard that theological term. Surely God is everywhere at all times. That's what the word omnipresence means, that all of God is everywhere, in all time, in all places, in all spaces. That's why the psalmist can say, where can I go from your presence? There's nowhere. If I go up the mountain, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. There's nowhere I can flee from your presence. God, you're everywhere. And that's true. But there's a difference theologically between the omnipresence of God, which is God's presence, God's reality everywhere, and the manifest presence of God, which is the specific turning up of God in a specific place to bless and to pour out his spirit and to reveal himself and to manifest himself. And Moses is saying, I know God, you're everywhere, but I want your presence to bless. I want your presence with us. I want to see the manifest presence of God. And dear friends, that's what we hunger for. Dear friends, that's what's going to mark us out. Dear friends, that's what our hearts cry is, God, will you pour out your spirit upon us? Let your presence to bless be with us. Let your presence amongst us be real and tangible and manifest and not vague and generic and unspecific. Let it be here. Let it be. And I love Moses' prayer. I love his passion. I love his heart. He's impish. He's, he's cheeky. He's, he, he won't let God go. Like Jacob. You remember Jacob wrestling with the angel? Wrestling with the angel of God. Won't let God go. And he, he, like he won't let God go. And there's a tenacity about Moses when he just, there's a holy boldness about Moses. There's, he, he just won't let go in God, let God go in prayer. See, Moses knew the family promises. Moses knew that God had spoken to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Joseph, and to the people of God. And God had promised that they would be with, that he would be with them. 
He promised that he personally would come and manifest his glory. He promised that through them, all families of the earth would know his presence and his glory. And Moses is just not going to let God off his word. Now, I've read, been rereading some old books recently, and I came across an old book that I read probably some 30 years ago when it was first published, although it was a series of sermons that were delivered in the 1950s by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in London. The book's called Revival, and it's a fascinating study of God moving and God's power and passion and presence that would move on planet Earth to fill planet Earth with his glory. And this passage really caught my eye again. This is what he says, Lloyd-Jones. And he's not given to overstatement, Lloyd-Jones, normally. Reading those who've been used by God, you will find this holy boldness, this argumentation, this reasoning, this putting the case to God, this pleading his own promises. Why I think this is the whole secret of prayer. And then he quotes a Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, Thomas Goodwin uses a wonderful term for this. He says, sue God. Sue him. Do not leave him alone. Pester him with his own promises. Tell him what he has said he is going to do. Quote scripture to him. God delights to hear us pleading his own promises. Quoting his own words to him. And saying, in the light of this... Oh God, how can you refrain? It delights the heart of God. Sue him. Is that your prayer life? Is that your corporate prayer? Is that our corporate prayer life in Christ Central Churches? Oh, if it be your will, God. If you'd like to do this, then bless. Please bless my plans. Please bless this. Or are we tenacious? Are we getting hold of God and saying, God, will you do what you said? God, you promised this, and Moses won't let God off the hook. He's going to keep coming, and keep coming, and keep coming until God wonderfully, because God wants to do this, God will give him what he asks for. This is what John says in 1 John 5 verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, In other words, according to what he's promised, according to what he said, he will hear us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. Dear friends, let me ask you, do you know the promises of God? Do you know what God said about you? Do you know what God said about his glorious church? Will you move even tonight as we had magnificent interpretations and then that incredible prophetic word from Dave about the glory of God in the church? There are promises of God that one day, even through the church, the manifold grace, the manifold wisdom of God would be revealed to principalities and powers. That through the church, these things would happen. That actually God would fill all of planet Earth with his glory, that there's not going to be a square inch of planet Earth that isn't touched by the glory of God. God's given us some mighty promises. One day, the, the mountain of the house of the Lord, which is a prophetic uh, <coughs> word for the church, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up as the chief mountain. Oh, Christianity's on the slide, don't you know? It's very sad. It's not 
in the 1950s anymore. We haven't got Billy Graham quite with us in the same way that he was. And it's kind of nostalgic as we look back. I don't care who's with us in that sense. I care that God's with us. And his promises are just as true. And he wants to pour out his spirit. He wants a people to rise up in confidence and believe him. Who says, won't let him go. Who says, God, move in our day. God, move in our nation. God, move across the face of planet Earth because you said it. We're not persuading God to do anything he doesn't want to do. He wants to do this. In fact, he, there's a testing of Moses in this. And sometimes it gets darker so that our flame can grow brighter, that we can believe God, that he's going to pour out his spirit. I love the fact that Moses gets hold of the covenant. You kind of not always notice it straight away, but three times Moses says, your people. I think it's kind of a response to God saying, you led this people out of Egypt. And Moses, no, I didn't. No, your, 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 your people. This is your people, Lord. This is about your glory. How will people know? How will they know that which distinguishes us unless you come with us? And God amazingly answers. God answers prayer. You know, prayer is a game changer. Prayer never lessens God's sovereignty. But it always raises our responsibility. When we pray, we're lining ourselves up to do the will of God. We're lining ourselves up with what God has said. He will be sovereign. And he says, okay, my presence will go with you. And then Moses asks for this guarantee. Lord, now show me your glory. Charles Spurgeon says this, it's the greatest petition that a man has ever asked God. Show me your glory. Is that your heart? Lord, reveal to me your presence. Show me your glory. Let me be one who experiences the glory of God. I want to live in this glory. Later, Moses is going to come down from this mountain, shining with his face. So much so, they're going to say, whoa, hang on, hide the face a bit, Moses. It's a bit glorious, because Moses has encountered God. Moses has seen the glory of God. Moses has encountered God in an incredible way. And God says, okay, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. When I first read this, I thought, it's a bit strange. Moses asks for glory, and God says, I'm going to tell you my name. Huh? Bit weird. No, I ask for glory, not your name. But actually, somehow, God's glory and God's name are inextricably linked. That actually... In the Bible, the name is someone's character, who they really are. And that's how God first revealed himself to Moses, as the name, as the one who lives, as the I am who I am, the great one who lives and has power to bless. And God says, I'm going to reveal to you, Moses, my glory, but I'm going to reveal it to you in my name. I'm going to show you the deepest insight of my character. I'm going to reveal exactly who I am to you. Wow, what name? What name would you put to that? I'll tell you the names I would put. Holy. Powerful. Just. True. Faithful. No, that's not the name that God chooses to reveal. The name that God chooses to reveal is He's good. Very simple. Very profound. Dear friends... God is good. He's a good father. He's a faithful, good 
Father. God's greatest glory and his true character is that he is good. See, when they dedicated the temple many years later under Solomon's leadership, they collected materials under David's reign, but under Solomon's leadership, when they dedicated the temple, it said this in Chronicles 2 Chronicles 7, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And all the Israelites knelt down. They worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, and his love endures forever. Do you know what, dear friends? We need more and more revelation of the goodness of God. We need more and more revelation. The New Testament would go even more explicit on this, and John, the closest person to Jesus on planet Earth, when he was walking in the flesh, was that he said, God God, he said, he got, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He later writes, God is love. This is the goodness of God, dear friends. We need a revelation of this, I believe, in our hearts tonight. I believe that God wants to freshly overwhelm us with his goodness. I believe God wants to freshly fill us with his love. He freshly wants to know the wonderful interpretation we had tonight was about knowing who we are in Christ, knowing that we're sons before a good father, one who loves us unconditionally, one who is for us. That's who God is. He's for us. He's loving. He's kind. He is the good God. Now, interestingly enough, God goes on in this passage to talk about his sovereignty. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll be kind to those I'll be kind to. And we need to know that. We need to know that this is a, what the wonderful revelation of who God is, is that he is both good and sovereign. He is good and he reigns. I believe most of our troubles as Christians is that we don't know who God is. We don't know his sovereignty. We don't know his goodness. We choose to trust other things. We choose to doubt him. We don't know that he's good and he's sovereign. Let me tell you a little story. When I was uh, pastoring on the south coast of England, uh, I was uh, in a team led by another man who went on holiday. It wasn't his normal thing to do, went on holiday, but he went away on holiday. I thought, great, I'm leading the church for a team leading for a few days. This is going to be great. couple of weeks, we're going to have some great meetings. I'm going to preach my best sermons. We're going to have some fun and we'll do it my way and you know, it's going to be great. First thing that happens, get a phone call from a, a middle-aged guy in the church called Terry Howard. And this man, middle-aged man, says, oh, hi, Jeremy. Oh, hi, Terry. I expect you want some advice. Expect you want... He said, yeah, I would like some advice, actually. I've just been told that I've got terminal cancer uh, and I've got probably a couple of weeks to live. I thought, a couple of weeks, that's when, no, no, but live a bit longer, because the guy's coming back, in a couple, I, I, uh, and he said, could you come and pray with me? I thought, oh God, I just want to have fun with some meetings, I, I, I don't want this, and I remember going to see this middle-aged gentleman, he said, I've got stomach cancer, they told me a, a, a week or two at the most, it's aggressive, it's, it's just gone through my body, and uh, I said, well, Terry, I have no idea what to say to you, but I do know this, God is good. And God is sovereign. And I don't understand how that works, but God loves you and he's for you and he's going to be good to you and he's sovereign and powerful. 20 years later, when he wrote up his little booklet of his autobiography, he said to me, a young pastor, didn't even name me, 
He said, a young pastor came to me and said, God is good and God is sovereign. And somehow I got a hold of that. I fed on that and God delivered me from this cancer. Listen, there is power in the fact of who God is. He's good and he's sovereign. He's not just good. Now, please hear me rightly in here. Sometimes if we just think he's good, he, in our minds, he becomes like a kind of benevolent Father Christmas. It's kind of loving Santa who kind of wants to bless you, but is kind of rather worried that you might be on the naughty list. And I'd love to bless you. I'd lo- I'm good. I'd love to, but I'm almost, I can't, can't really do an awful lot about it because you're, you're on the naughty list. And I'd love to, but I can't. Now, if we just see him as sovereign then he can be awesome and frightening and rather dangerous. A little bit like nuclear fission. We probably know it's a good idea, but we'd like to keep a long way away from it. Thank you very much. But our God is both good and sovereign. He loves us and is for us. His heart and character and name is he's good to us. And his power and his authority backs that up and works miracles in our lives. This is our God, dear friends. He's good and sovereign. And tonight, I believe, God wants to bring revelation of that right into our hearts, right into our spirits. Now, we kind of get this strange thing that happens in this passage. It's kind of weird, unless you understand the typology, unless you understand the prophetic fulfillment of it. But we're suddenly introduced to this character called The Rock, I'm going to show you my glory. It's all about my goodness. It's all about my sovereignty. But I'm going to hide you in a rock. What? And you kind of get this character that comes on the stage very occasionally. In fact, quite often through these passages in Exodus. In fact, some Jewish commentators actually thought a rock followed them around. Oh, there's the rock again. Quick, there's the rock, hide. You know, I don't think, I'm not sure that actually the rock followed them around, quite like some Jewish commentators thought. But quite often you get this character or you get this idea of this rock being there. Moses is told at one point to speak to the rock, and he does, and water comes out. He's told another time to speak to it. Unfortunately, he strikes it, and, you know, we get it, he gets it wrong. But the rock comes up a few times. What is this rock about? Who is this rock? In fact, The Bible tells us very clearly who this rock is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock, they being Israel in the desert. That's what he's talking about. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus is right there. You see, the gospel is right here in this passage. It's so amazing to me. As we see this passage, we see God's provision for the gospel right there, right in this passage. He's told that he's going to be placed in the rock. Because if he wasn't placed in the rock, if he wasn't covered in the rock, actually, when the power and the glory of God showed up, actually, Moses, you're going to be consumed because no man can stand before me and live. But I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to put you in the rock. I'm going to place you into Christ. And this is a wonderful picture, dear friends, of what's happened to us as Christians. We've been taken by Almighty God because of his love for us, 
because of his goodness and because of his sovereignty, he's taken us and he has placed us into Christ. We are secure in Christ. And when God's holiness and fearful, awesome majesty turns up, we're not consumed, we're safe in Christ. We're complete in Christ. Jesus has taken for us all our sin, all our shame, all that that which should be burnt up in us was placed on him and dealt with on the cross. He took all the wrath and the anger of God. Every single part of my sin, my guilt, my shame was placed on Christ. I'm secure now. I'm placed in the rock. It's wonderful. It's good news. God is so good. It's the gospel. 250 years ago, almost exactly, an Anglican vicar was walking on the moors and was caught in an awful storm. And to hide from this storm, he found a place in the rock. He found a place in a rock and he hid from the storm. And this gentleman called August Top Lady, what a great name for a vicar, August Top Lady. And he, <laughs> he later wrote down in his journal, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And it became quite a popular song. Jesus is the one in whom we hide. Jesus is the one in whom we are secure. My life is now not my own. It's hidden with Christ in God. I'm actually joined to Jesus. This is the amazing apostolic revelation of the New Testament. That because of God's love, his goodness, because he's for me, because he's sovereign, he's joined me to Christ inseparably. I'm secure now in Christ. You see, this passage is all about the glory of God. The greatest revelation of the glory of God is the Lord Jesus. See, this passage was preserved down through history, certainly authored by Moses in terms of its oral tradition, but many theologians would say probably written up in its current form in the exilic period, the exile period in Babylon. Probably that's the collation of this Pentateuch works, probably. Oral tradition by Moses or, and the others down through the years, but probably brought together. And one of the things they were so aware of in the exilic period in Babylon, one of the things that so troubled them, one of the things that was so worrying for the people of God, they lost the glory of God. God was no longer with them in the same way. That's why this passage, I think, comes alive for them as they're writing it down, as they're thinking about it. It comes alive because they, one of their prophets, Ezekiel, had actually seen the glory of God disappear. He'd actually seen the glory of God leave the temple. And they were hungering once again for the glory of God. And Jesus comes on the scene hundreds of years later. Jesus comes on the scene actually as the glory of God. He comes back as the glory of God. He comes as the glory of God. He comes to radiate God's glory. He comes to be the manifestation of the glory of God. We get wonderful promises. In fact, the gospel writers almost write it like Moses, like Jesus is a new Moses leading bringing his people out of their exile 
and bringing them back with the presence of God, bringing them back to God. In fact, his very name is Emmanuel, God now with us. Angels singing, glory to God in the highest. God is with us, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. John writes this, the word became flesh and made his tabernacle, his dwelling with us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Dear friends, when we get incorporated into Christ, when we get sheltered in the rock, this isn't some passing phase for us. Moses later comes out of the rock. We never come out of the rock. We're forever in Christ and we're forever incorporated into his glory. We become actually joined to the glory. We get joined to the glorious one. So you get writings like this, Colossians 1 verse 27. God has chosen to make known the glorious mystery. What is the glorious mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the glorious mystery. 2 Thessalonians 2.14. He's called you through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus. Dear friends, the glory of God will never pass away like Moses' day. There will never be a time when God says, now, by the way, my glory is going to leave you. I'll tell you why. Because there's a permanence now to the glory of God in Christ in the church. You really get a hold of this tonight. There's a permanence to this. He's never going to leave us. In fact, this is funny. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Then he went. <laughs> so, some of the last words of Jesus on earth. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Bye. But he says, but I'm going to send one just like me. I'm going to send you another one. I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. We're going to come and make our home in you. And then at Pentecost, the risen Lord Jesus pours out his spirit and the glory of God is back in the church. The glory of God is in the church. The glory of God is radiating in the church. So Paul can later write things like this in 2 Corinthians 3. If the ministry, and he's directly referring to this passage and these writings, if the ministry that was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And if what was transitory, passing, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of God that lasts? And we all, dear friends, we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. And we're all being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, which is the Spirit. Dear friends, the glory of the Lord is in us and upon us because we're in Christ and he's, he's put his Spirit upon us. That's why... When we gather as a church, we don't have meetings, gatherings. It's not some club. It's not some fellowship of like-minded people. 
You don't pay your dues, your sub, to go along, to belong to the club. When we meet, we're the glorious church. When we meet, God's with us. When two or three gather together, there am I in the midst. Ephesians 2, you are members of God's house. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And You know, I think we've lost something of the awe of when we gather. I think we've lost, or we're in danger of losing something. I think God wants to underline this in our churches. You know, I think there's a, a whole lot of thinking out there at the moment, which says, and please don't hear me wrong, I think you guys have done a splendid job. I think the team have done magnificently here. But there's the thing that if we just get the logo right, if we just get the lights right, if the smoke just comes out at the right, oh, there it is, at the right moment, if we get our website right, if we have the right buzzwords, if we have the right refreshments, and we do, and we have, our meetings mustn't be too long because people can't cope with things too long. And if we just get that bit, we get the atmosphere right. And if we get the great preaching right, and if we get the great music. Now, this is not an appeal for lousy logos. You know, it's not an appeal for us to do it. Let's do it really badly. It's not an appeal for that. It's an appeal to say what distinguishes us from all peoples. It's the presence. It's the glory of God with us. Dear friends, please, please hear this. When the unbeliever comes in and they hear us prophesying and declaring the wonders of God and their hearts are exposed, will they not fall down and say, surely you didn't get the lights very good. I was kind of hoping for some smoke. No, they say, surely God's with us. God's with you. How many times have you heard that in your church? We've heard it multiple times when people say, no, there's something. What is it about you guys? What it, it's God. This is, this is who we are, dear friends. This is who we are. We are the glorious church. Now, I want to keep us on the corporate. We're going to come back to worship in a moment and we're going to enjoy the corporate. But I want to also stress and underline the individual in this. Because if it's true that we are the glory of God corporately, if it's true that we're indwelt by his glorious spirit, the spirit of Christ, who is the glory of God, it's also true that I'm indwelt by the spirit of God. And I actually become a glory carrier. I actually become someone in whom is the spirit of Christ, someone in whom God dwells. I'm not just belong to a club where he dwells. I don't just belong to a club where he turns up. Actually, he turns up and he's in me permanently. And there's a permanence to this. He doesn't just come one day and gone the next. He's in me and he's in you. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 to 7. God has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're not very impressive. We're cracked pots. Some of us. Cracked pots, probably. (laughs) To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, the world's obsessed with identity. Finding out who you are. 
being true to yourself. Listen, I'll tell you who you are. You're in Christ. You're joined to Jesus. Who you really are is a glory carrier. Who you really are is one who carries his presence with you wherever you go. And the truth is this, you don't even realize it. You don't even know it when you go to that garage. You don't even realize when you go to that shopping center, when you go to school, when you go to college, when you go to the office, when you go home. You don't even realize it, but you're a glory carrier. And actually, just occasionally, you get a little flip of the veil, and some people just somehow see it. Anna and I have had some weird experiences over the last few years. Just recently, some of our neighbors came to us and said, you're a bit special, aren't you? (laughs) We're very special. (laughs) There's something different about you two. What is it? You're this... I mean, they they used a kind of weird... You said, you're this sort of perfect couple, and what is it about you? I'll tell you what it is. They're seeing the glory. They just don't understand what they're seeing. We had a couple come up to us in a rest. We were in a restaurant in Greece. A couple came up to us and said, we can see an aura all over you. What, you know, we see something. What is this? What is it? It's the glory of God. It is the glory of God. Now, they may be a bit weird and new agey, but they can see the glory of God. When my sister was in a hospital, she'd been in a coma for two weeks after a dreadful brain hemorrhage, after this dreadful tragedy in our family. She'd been in a coma for two weeks. Anne and I turn up in the hospital. There'd been no movement in her at all. We start talking and she starts moving. She starts stirring. So, oh, we haven't seen this before. And people say, oh, maybe your voice is kind of familiar to her. No, the glory's turned up. The presence of God turned up. You're a glory carrier. Stuff happens around you. I don't know if you've ever seen those programs where they, like they do sort of animal watch or whatever, and they put people's, they put goggles on people at night, you know, these kind of night vision glasses, and you can suddenly, it looks all black until you put the goggles on the camera, because, oh, that's a badger, oh, look at that. Now, some, uh, we need some glory goggles, we need some glasses on us, where we can suddenly see the glory of God in one another. I think if we could see how glorious we were, I think we'd be amazed. If you realize what you carried in the world, and sometimes the, the, the world sees it, if they could see it, I think actually they're going to be very surprised. Now, actually, what I want God to do in us tonight is to build a confidence in us of who we are. We're just jars of clay. I mean, we're just cracked pots. I mean, we're not special, but the glory of God is in us. We're carrying this, dear friends. We're carrying his glory. And he wants us to go about our lives knowing this. And what, how does that mean we live? Does it mean we go a bit weird? And No. Well, i tell you what it means. Is that we display the character of God, the goodness of God, and the sovereignty of God, the power of God. It means when we come across people who aren't well, we pray for them. And we display love to them and mercy to them, and grace to them, and God heals, and God sets free. Does he do it always? No. Will he do it one day to everything? Yes, in eternity. But we get down payments of it now. We get little tastes of it now. We get little glimpses of the glory now. And more and more, God wants us to show who we really are, to act with love, to act with mercy, to act with goodness. I believe this. 
God wants to display through you his goodness. He wants to display through you his love. He wants to reach out to a lost and dying world. You're probably the only bit of goodness they're going to see that day. You're probably the only bit of good news they're going to see that day. Now, I think there's going to be a rising tide against the church. Don't get this idea that it's all going to be glory and light. There's going to be persecution. People are going to be against us. But actually, what I believe is going to win the day is the love of God expressed in the glory of God, expressed in mercy and love as we live our lives. Let me end by giving you this scripture. This is 1 Peter 2. I've mentioned this before, but I want to underline it again. 1 Peter 2, 12 and 15, it says this, live such good lives amongst the pagans. Live good lives. Listen, you don't get to eternity by being good, but because you're going to eternity, you get to be good. So we don't get saved by being good. We get saved because he was good. He was good for us. We were never good enough. He was good for us. His righteousness It's all given to us, but actually we get incorporated into his goodness and we get to be good. We get to display goodness. We get to display righteousness. Live such good lives. I mean, is that what people really think about us? Live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and they will accuse you of doing wrong, they'll say things like this. You mean you had a holiday and you camped? stupid. And and you mean when they gave an appeal for money, you didn't just tip? You gave how much? That's stupid. What do you mean? That you, you, you say no to your children? No, no, you must always say yes. Don't, don't say no. Always say yes. What, what do you mean? One man and a woman for life? Ugh. That's very restrictive. It's wrong. That's what the world says. They will accuse us of doing wrong. Although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. They may see your goodness and glorify God on the day he visits us. For it's God's will that by doing good, displaying God's character, displaying God's glory, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You can tell them they're ignorant or foolish. I don't think that's going to work. I don't think shouting on a street corner, telling people they're going to hell because they're under an angry God is probably the best form of evangelism. It's quite controversial. I think the Bible says it's the goodness of God or the kindness of God or the mercy of God that leads to repentance. Now, we do need to tell people the truth about eternal punishment. We do need to tell people the the truth about eternity, but actually we need to tell them of a good God who loves them, of a good Father who wants them to come to him, that he wants none to perish because he loves them. For God so wanted to judge the world that he sent his only son. No, God so loved. God so loves the world. God so loves the world. He's a good, good God. He's a good, good Father. He so loves the world that he sent his only son. Dear friends, I believe tonight there's going to be a revelation afresh on us of the love of God. There's going to be a revelation of us, on us, of God's goodness and God's sovereignty. And there are some things that need to come into line with that. There's some attitudes in our minds 
where we've been harmful to other people and we've held unforgiveness to other people. We've been bitter to others. And we need to come bring that into line with God's goodness. And so, no, I'm, I'm actually going to display to others what God's displayed to me. Isn't that the base of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive our trespasses as we forgive others. Lord, look how good I'm for, at forgiving. <laughs> Thank you, you've forgiven me in that same way. Whoa, that's pretty serious. We need to align ourselves with that. Some attitudes need to change in our hearts, in our lives. God's love is goodness. Also, there's some sovereign issues. Oh, I've always been that way. Oh, God's sovereign. You don't always have to be that way. But but I've always had this illness. No, well, God's sovereign. He can take it away tonight. God wants to bring a revelation tonight of his goodness, his sovereignty, his love. I'm just going to ask the band to come back up. And we're going to corporately experience the presence of God because he is with us. Because his presence is upon us. Because we are glory carriers. We've deliberately left lots of time tonight. We finish 25 minutes later. Finish at half nine. We've deliberately left loads of time that we might experience his glory. Let me pray as the band comes back up. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Reveal your glory, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we're in Christ, that we're in the rock. This is no temporary state of affairs. This is a permanent reality joined to Jesus, incorporated into him. And we thank you that we get to shine like Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're the light of the world. Then you said to your disciples, now you're the light of the world. We get to display his glory. Lord, my prayer is for the church to rise in confidence. For us to rise in an awareness of who we are in Christ. When we gather, Lord, in our communities to know that God's with us. That it's his glory that defines us, that marks us out. And when we live our lives 24-7, Lord, this whole event devoted is shaped to training and equipping us to live lives for Jesus in the week. That we know that we are not just jars of clay, but we are jars of clay filled with glory, filled with your presence, filled with the very spirit of Christ. Christ is in us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. You're in us, Lord. And I want to pray, Lord, even tonight, for touches of your glory amongst us. Let's just stand before him. Just now, there's going to be touches of his glory upon us. Let the glory... Let the manifest glory, your presence to bless, let your glory be on us, Lord. We receive your presence. We welcome your presence. Just welcome him. Just acknowledge his presence. Acknowledge he's here by his spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Let your glory fall in this place, Lord. 
Let it go forth from here to the nations. Come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit.